are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Romans thirteen eight through 14. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immortality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. All right. Thank you, Megan. Well, it certainly won't be long now, at least the way the temps felt this week. Things are starting to dip down into the 30s. It was nice and frosty out this morning. And maybe you've got a few more projects at your place that you'd like to get done. I told you a couple weeks ago about the deck project at my place, replacing a few rotten boards. And as projects tend to do, it got a little more complicated. And I thought I was just going to replace some treadboards down near the ground, but when I lifted those off, I could see that the stringers were totally rotting away. And so I chopped them off and decided to put down a little bit of concrete underneath so it wouldn't just happen again. And now with the nighttime temps dropping, the heat has been on to get this thing done. The clock has been ticking. And uh, this week, we finally got it done. And I emphasize we because really it was my neighbor who was doing about 90% of the work. This is not my area of expertise, so I can hold a board, work a drill, and follow instructions, but that's about it. But there's an urgency this time of year, before the snow flies, and there's an urgency in our scripture passage today here in Romans 13. We're in our fall message series, studying the second half of the book of Romans. And we're into the later chapters now where the Apostle Paul is commending certain qualities to us. He's not moralizing as we study these later chapters now. He's not giving us a religious to-do list. But he's building on the truth of the gospel that was laid out in chapters 1 through 8. And he's showing us how we now get to respond to God's grace that we've received. The section that we're presently in began back in Romans 12.1. In view of God's mercy, Paul said, because of what Jesus has done for us, we offer our bodies, our whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's how Paul began this train of thought, by saying, here I am, Lord. All I want to do, all I can do, is say thank you for all that you've done for me. Here is my whole self as an offering of praise. And Paul's been spelling that out for us in Romans 12, Romans 13, and next week we'll turn into chapter 14 together. 
I've entitled our message today, The Urgency of Love. As we combine the emphasis of two paragraphs, one that speaks about love and the second that says it's urgent. I was watching my daughter play soccer in a game in St. Francis on Thursday afternoon, and her team was down 1-0, or 1-0, I guess, as they say in soccer. And it was deep in the second half, so when Amaya was close to the sideline, it was before a throw-in, I caught her attention and I said, Amaya, now's the time. There's not much time left. And so too, God's word seems to catch our attention today and say to us, now's the time. There's not much time left. There's an urgency to what God desires for us. And so with that, let's begin our study. I have three main headings, imperatives for us today. The first of which will be this. Be indebted to one another in love. I want us to remember the first seven verses of this chapter, where a couple weeks ago we discussed the government and how we relate to it, and everyone's favorite department, the Internal Revenue Service. And Paul said there in verse 7, this is just one verse prior to what we read today, he said, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, honor. And Paul now is leaning on that language of finance as he shifts into the topic of love. So verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now this passage is not intended to say that you should never take out a loan. That you can't have a mortgage or a car loan or something like that. That's not the point of the passage. Now there's good reason we know to be cautious about incurring debt, and the Bible speaks to that. It's not something that's forbidden, and yet these things are outside the intent of the passage. Rather, Paul is leaning on this financial term from verse 7, and he's saying, in a different kind of paraphrase, let your only debt that remains outstanding be the debt of mutual love. He's saying there is a good kind of debt that you always want to have when we're indebted to one another in love. It is never paid off. We're never in the position to say, well, I've loved enough with that one. I've met my quota. My work here is done. Now, there's a never-ending debt of love that I am always paying in earnest and is never completely settled. It reminds me of the little boy who did something extra around the house to help out his mom. And she was so impressed and so blessed by this that she fished out a dollar to pay him for his time, but he refused to take it. And he said, no, mama, I'd done it for love. Paul then states the basis for this debt in the second half of the verse. He says, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That's why. And he draws here on the teaching of Jesus as he talks about the commands of the Old Testament. And you can see in our passage, he cites the Ten Commandments. He names some of them. You shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal. And the other commands, not just the others out of the ten, but the 613 total commands of the Old Testament law. And he says, they're all summed up in one command. 
Again, echoing Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. And we remember when Jesus pointed this out, it was when he was asked by the religious leaders, what is the greatest command? Matthew 22, if you want to look it up later, or the other Gospels tell the story as well. And Jesus responds to that question by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. And then he says, and the second greatest command is like it. And that is, love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus 19.18. So that's why Paul can say here, whoever does this, whoever loves their neighbor is fulfilling the law. Now, it's important to point out that fulfilling does not mean replacing. As if to love one another has replaced every other command of God and is the only thing that we ever have to worry about. This would fly in the face of Paul and Jesus and the whole of New Testament teaching. Yet today, even in the church, we can run into this idea, this notion that all that matters is being nice. As if that's the sum total of what it would mean to follow Jesus. I thought Thomas Schreiner put some good clarification on this. He says, It does not follow from this that love goes around the law or beyond its prescriptions. If love is cut free from any commands, it easily dissolves into sentimentality. And virtually any course of action can be defended as loving. When the Bible speaks of love fulfilling the law, the law is not gone. It means that love is at the heart. It is the integral core of all of God's commands. Now, if we accept this, there's one more question to settle. If I'm willing to be indebted to others in love, and if the command is to love my neighbor, well, then in the words of Luke 10, who is my neighbor? The guy asking that question in Luke was looking for some wiggle room around this question to see if he could narrow down the definition and make the command to love others just a little bit more reasonable. Don't you know some people in your life where you wish there was kind of this exemption clause? Don't look at your neighbor at the table. That wouldn't be nice. I bet there's somebody in your life, maybe a handful of people, where, you know, their name should have a little asterisk next to it. Where then if you look down the page at the bottom of the footnote, it says, does not apply. There's people, probably in your life, where it would be easier, from a human perspective, to write them off. People who have used up every ounce of grace that they could possibly deserve. Does God mean that I am indebted to that kind of person? Who is Paul talking about? Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, in the setting of Romans, and certainly consistent with Jesus, the first place of loving one another begins here, in the church. There is a spiritual family that is more real than flesh and blood, that is seated around you in this gymnasium, in other churches across our city, and in nations around the world. I was on a YMCA video conference this week with Christian leaders from other parts of the world, people from Hong Kong, England, Honduras, Bangladesh, Nepal, etc. 
And at the end of the call, the person who was chairing the meeting said to a young woman in her 20s from Madagascar, he said, Miali, would you close our meeting in prayer? And in English, through her accent, she says, yes, I would be honored to. May I pray in my own language? It was a beautiful picture of the family of God. The first neighbor is my fellow Christ follower. Whether it's here in this space or an ocean away. Whether we are the closest of friends or you can hardly believe that you go to the same church as this person. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are people here who are vastly different from you seated at these tables. And if there's any place on earth where these secondary differences should be set aside, then it must be here in the church, in the family of Christ. And yet neighbor language is not confined just to the people who are following Jesus with me. When Jesus answers the guy in Luke 10 to go back to that story, he tells a parable of a good Samaritan. Someone outside the people of God. The person you would least expect. And even there, we get to practice paying generous debts of love. Where are you being called right now to pay generous, maybe even difficult debts of love? In such times as we're living in, you probably don't have to look very far to answer that kind of question. I know I don't. And yet, even here, with people God has put right under my own nose, or in my own community, or right in my own family, am I living Like I am indebted to love. Not just tolerating people. Not just being polite. But actively, persistently, tenaciously spending love. Number one, be indebted to one another in love. Paul then connects this command to a level of urgency, which is an interesting shift now. You know, because it could have stood on its own, but it's like he sets the timer and says the clock is ticking. And our second heading this morning is wake up and put on the armor of light. Paul says in verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. At high school ministry, Wednesday night, I brought along my favorite board game, and we played a rousing round of scattergories. I thought, we did this at the end. We needed a little cool down after working through the Trinity, the Athanasian Creed, and the attributes of God. So we busted out scattergories, and I couldn't believe it. Fourteen high school students and hardly anybody knew the game of scattergories. So I explained the rules. We handed out the notepads. We rolled the letter G, not an easy one. And I set the timer. Do this and understand the time. Paul says to the Romans, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Now, he's writing to people in the ancient Near East whose daily routines are dictated by the sun. There's no alarm clock. There's no electricity. They can't turn on the lamps in the evening with the light switch. No, you woke up with the sunrise and you went to bed when it was dark. And furthermore, because of the place in the world this was, 
You really had to get up and get your work done before the heat of the day would arrive. Sleeping in, in their culture, was not a good idea. And yet we may find ourselves, in our time, sleeping in spiritually. Kind of groggy. Not really sure if we want to get up and get at them. Finding it's just easier to roll over and keep doing what we're doing. Arguably, the greatest theologian outside of the Bible knew this kind of struggle very, very well. His name was Augustine. And I'll return to his story later on, but listen to how he described where he was at as a young man. As he writes this, he's directing these words to God. Here's what he says. The burden of the world weighed me down with a sweet drowsiness such as commonly occurs during sleep. The thoughts with which I meditated about you, God were like the efforts of those who would like to get up but are overcome by deep sleep and sink back again. Some of us may need exactly this word this morning, this grace-filled but firmly spoken word from the Lord that says to you, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up from your slumber. Paul says, it's because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And he's talking here about the future tense of our salvation. When Jesus returns, when he comes again in power to judge the living and the dead, and those in Christ are fully and finally delivered from sin and death. Paul says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The day of the Lord. And we read that and we might object a little bit. We might read that and say, well, Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. Apparently, he miscalculated when he said, almost here. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And yet we remember the whole testimony of Scripture on these things. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day Peter writes about this. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We're in this time, my brothers and sisters, where the church has been given a task to be on this mission to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That men, women, and children in our town, in our community, and all across the world would be restored in their relationship to God. And then the next event in God's plan is Christ's return. So Christ's return is always imminent. We live in this tension. Whether it's a day or a thousand years from now, we are to be watchful and awake and ready. Paul says then in the passage in verse 12, so, drawing the conclusion, let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. When I was in Sunday school growing up, we used to sing songs like Onward Christian Soldier. Or there was this hilarious one that went, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Did anybody else sing that song? Yes, Barb Guidarelli. Thank you. 
And then I noticed, you know, the years went by and those songs really fell out of vogue because of their combat language. And certainly, let's think carefully about this. We don't want anything to do with the abuses of things like the Crusades or the Inquisition or some kind of religious militia. Things which have very little to do with biblical Christianity. But have we overcorrected? And I mean by that, let us not be lulled to sleep in thinking that we're not in a battle and that we don't actually need armor. In the most well-known passage in this regard, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He says in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. A couple weeks ago, Craig Otto and I, as representatives from the Y Church, attended the LCMC National Gathering in Ohio, in Columbus. LCMC is the church body that the Y Church is part of. And on the very first morning, Craig and I went down to the hotel lobby for breakfast. And there were these stacks of complimentary newspapers. And the article right on the front page said, Millions giving up organized religion. And the irony of that headline on the opening morning of our church's national gathering was not lost on me. And look at a couple of the lines from the article. Headline, millions giving up organized religion. And then this quote. That may portend a decline in civic and political engagement by individual Americans Continuing a trend of withdrawing from public life. Non-religious people don't volunteer or belong to organizations, even things like the PTA. Now, it's a generalization, but based on the data, the article is saying, it is generally true. This is USA Today, to my knowledge, not a Christian publication, saying in our country, this is what we're seeing. If people will not worship God, they will worship something else, and usually it's going to be themselves. They will withdraw from public service and pursue their personal interest. In the absence of God, we are naturally narcissistic. Does this article rouse us from our sleep? Does it? Does it get you fired up a little bit? Because I don't want this headline written about my country. Millions disillusioned with faith. Growing up in spiritually ambiguous households where they kind of still believe in God, but it's not given any further definition. And so they grow into adulthood and they check the box for religious affiliation as none. It doesn't have to be this way. The spiritual health of our nation is hanging in the balance right now. Our kids, our friends, our neighbors. The battle is real. The clock is ticking. Will we wake up and put on the armor of light? Let's move to our final heading for the day. Number three in this passage, walk in the light 
and put on the character of Christ. Verse 13, Paul writes, Let us behave decently as in the daytime. And we see him continuing this theme of darkness and light, don't we, as he moves through the passage. But I want to take a closer look at the first phrase in that line because it contains one of my favorite Greek words. I know I've told you about it before. Peripateo. It's translated here as behave decently, but what it literally means is to walk around in a certain way. When the Elk River Elks win a football game, 57 to 56, with 0.7 seconds left on the clock, you walk around a certain kind of way after that kind of win. Don't you? I mean, you peripateo around the field as a winner. And the other team peripateos their little selves back to the bus for the long ride home. Paul says to us, if you're following Christ, then there is a certain way to walk, and it means walking around in the light. Living in a certain way, my brothers and sisters. Being conformed to the image of Christ, Paul said earlier in Romans. And then he gives us some examples of what this does not look like. Three pairs of things that would try and keep us from living and walking in the light. The first is carousing and drunkenness. In other words, partying and over-consuming alcohol. Now, on a side note, does Scripture forbid alcohol? We could take a straw poll, right, and see the different answers. The plain answer would be no, it doesn't. Now, some believers will conclude that though it is permissible, it is not beneficial. Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 10. And so they will apply that in this case and advise against it and refrain themselves. It's one interpretation and a respectable one. But alcohol in appropriate measure is not forbidden. What is and what always is, is drinking in excess. And so we want to be careful that we do not go down that road for our own spiritual health, or for the sake of others, that we model this well in our homes. The second pair, then, is sexual immorality and debauchery. Now, I don't suppose debauchery is in your everyday vocabulary. It's not in mine. And actually, in the Greek, in the original, these two terms are hard to distinguish. They're fairly synonymous. But the Bible has much to say about healthy sexual ethics. God did, after all, invent sexuality. And this is an area that can be either absolutely life-giving and God-honoring when we walk in the light, but in the dark, sexual sin in its various forms will absolutely take hold of us and destroy us. That's maybe another sermon for another day. The third pair, verse 13, is dissension and jealousy. Dissension is a word that means strife, discord, or contention. And living in such contentious times as we are, this should catch our eye. Paul's saying, have no part of it. Don't get sucked into bashing people that you don't agree with. And by the way, it doesn't mean that the other person is always right or even right in this instance. It's just not worth the division. And remember, this applies first here, first in the church, but then with our neighbors as well. 
That's the list. And just as a follow-up to it, I want to urge you and, and speak to this and say, if you struggle with any of these kinds of things in particular, a party lifestyle, excessive drinking, sexual sin, division, jealousy, I encourage you and urge you to bring it into the light. Because these things thrive when they're hidden, when they live in the dark. And so you can come talk with me confidentially, another trusted friend here at church. You can meet with one of our prayer ministers after the service. Or in your Y group, you could bring some of these things. But bring it into the light as Augustine learned to do. Remember his story? This was back in February. When we started into Romans... We talked about Augustine, that this guy had been an absolute party animal. Augustine enjoyed everything in excess, and yet he still managed to hold down a job. Do you know anybody like this, by the way? Party, 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 and yet he's climbing the ladder at work. He is successful in everything he does, but on the inside, Augustine is dead and empty. And I told the story back in February, that one day he was over at his friend's house and he was out in the yard where he just sat weeping uncontrollably under a tree. And then all of a sudden he could hear the voice of a little child like on the other side of the fence from a neighboring yard. And this child is singing, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine is wiping the tears from his eyes. His friend has gone inside. And there is a scroll that his friend had had that is laying within arm's reach there in the grass. So he picks it up, and the first words that his eyes land on in that scroll are these words. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Is this sounding familiar? Not in dissension and jealousy, but rather, and here's where we finish today, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It is this passage that changed Augustine's life. And so may I ask you this morning, what will this passage do for yours? My mom tells me that in middle school, I would stand in front of the full-length mirror in the morning before school and I would try on two, three, four different outfits trying to figure out what to wear. But more than that, trying to figure out who I was. And maybe some of us today are still standing in front of that mirror trying to figure out who we are and what we want to wear. The invitation of this passage to you is crystal clear this morning. Walk in the light. That is who you are. And put on the character of Christ. My brothers and sisters, there is an urgency about this today. There is an urgency to settle this question. And there is an urgency of love. May I pray with us?
Oh Lord, we disquiet ourselves before you. We thank you, Lord, that your invitation is full of grace. And even as yet it is firm, it is never heavy-handed. And so, Lord, where there are matters of urgency or of love that need to be settled in our hearts and minds this morning, we're ready, Lord. We come and we bring these things before you. We offer ourselves and our whole lives as a living sacrifice of praise. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.